Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg in the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Christine Mattis. Christine is a writer and educator. She holds a PhD in Environment and Resources. Her writing examines science, health, and the environment within the context of social and environmental justice. Prior to graduate school, she worked as a medical researcher, as a science reporter for the Congressional Record in the U.S. House of Representatives, and as a science and health teacher. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here because I think we're going to have some good conversations about a few different topics. And we've definitely talked about Planet of the Humans too much on this podcast, but I think it's a really good springboard and a litmus test. It wasn't so much the content of the film that's as interesting to me, which is plenty interesting, but a lot of that was old news to me. It was the reaction and response from mainstream environmentalists and a lot of media to the film. So the tee off question I'd have for you, because this is something that's been on my mind for a little bit, and I think you're a good person to respond to this is Greta Thunberg has been putting her message out for the last year or so. I think a lot of it is an excellent message. She's basically saying, hey, we've been messing around and it may even be too late. We got to take some serious measures because things are really falling apart with the climate. Yet then we have Planet of the Humans, which says pretty much exactly the same thing. And the response it got from the very same mainstream environmentalists who love Greta's message was <laughs> diametrically opposed. So what do you think is going on there? I'm not sure I have an answer, but I've been asking myself the same question. I have some ideas, but I mean, I would go a step further. I would say that not only did Planet of the Humans say the same thing that Greta's been saying, but that there are people for decades now who've been saying the same thing, um, adults and children alike, uh, who've been really marginalized from mainstream environmentalism. And for some reason, Greta set off a spark and she was um, embraced. Uh, well, I'm not sure if children have been saying the same thing, but I do wonder if something has to do with her being a child. Um, mm -hmm. She's a young adult, really, and she's 18 now, maybe, or 17. So mm -hmm. she's really getting into adulthood. But I think it might have to do with the fact that if adults are saying this and adults who are, who are actually sort of trying to walk the walk in their life and trying to make real huge changes, both personally and systemically, it, it, it falls on other people to follow those changes and to really pay attention to them. Because I think when a child says this, people say, well, she's a child and she has all this idealism and she wants to change it. And we embrace that, but we're not really willing to change the way we live. Mm. We're not really willing. To, and so I wonder if it has something to do with that. We love when we hear it from children and we're hopeful for the future. But when we hear it from another adult, it's more like it, it puts the onus on us and we don't really want to have that onus. I think that might be a really good point there because this is not to take anything away from Greta. And it was great that she was able to be the poster child for these issues. So sometimes it takes the right package, the right messenger, nothing wrong with that. Right. But in my mind, right. it's like, cool. She brought that to public consciousness. Excellent. Then 
Jeff Gibbs film follows up with that. Cool, everyone's on board. Let's go, folks. And then it's like, no, 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 not when you say it like that. So the question is, yeah, if it's coming from an adult or if it's because now the ball is in our court and people are like, oh, well, I, I just wanted to hear a child say things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't question her sincerity. And I think she, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she's so concerned and rightfully so. Um, but I do think the, that adults are really using her sort of as a token. By embracing her, they're saying, we really believe this and we really want to help you. But they also, I think, are just dismissing her on the sidelines as a child saying that we really don't have to listen to this in many ways. So I think it, I think it's, I, you know, it sounds very cynical, but I've, (laughs) I've, I've worked in the house of representatives. I've been around uh, people in power and I, you know, I don't see them making real necessary changes. I see them more as acting in their own best interests. And I think their best interest is to embrace this wonderful young girl, but Mm -hmm. then continue with business as usual. And it's much easier to do that with a younger person than it is with uh, adults who are saying, look, we even adults, you know, who've been out there saying we have solutions that don't go along with your solutions, but you're going to have to, you know, not be uh, greedy capitalists anymore. And we are going to have to vastly change our industries and our way of life. Um, and it's easier to hear that from a child and say, yeah, sort of pat her on the head. I really feel like, unfortunately, that's what's going on with a lot of these powerful um, people around the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, again, I don't want to take anything away from Greta. And I obviously have right. some criticisms of some of the things that she's saying as anyone. But, you know, who cares? That, that's not the point. The point is that she did get stuff out there and I was pretty amazed. Wow. She's saying some pretty intense stuff. Most of which I would say is pretty accurate, if not all of it. And I, mm-hmm. a lot of her misconceptions, she's young. She has the right to have some misconceptions. That's totally fine. But I think Absolutely. you're right. And it's like, people can say, Hey, look at, listen to this child. This is really important. And if you critique her, what? She's a child. How dare you? But then at the same time, well, she's saying that we have to get our house in order and we really have to change things. Well, she's just a child. So it's like they can use the child thing to protect any of the arguments they want. And at the same time, if they want to dismiss any of her arguments, they can do that too. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's always conscious because no. I know, right. if, I, I mean, you probably run into this. I've said to people, family and friends, the same things that Greta said, either before her or after her. Um, but most most jarringly, it's like after she's come out and everybody's learned about her, I'll say something, but it's not heard from my mouth. Right. And she said the same thing. It's very, it's very odd. And I don't even know if everybody even understands their reaction to her. Yeah, I would say that's most of it. I would say most of what's going on is unconscious. I would say most of what goes on in human society is unconscious. So when people do crappy things, I don't think most of the time they're like, here I go doing a crappy thing. I don't Mm -hmm. think people would be able to do that. But yeah, I just think it's interesting. So if she was that right emissary to wake people up, that's great. You know, I understand. Yeah, you you would listen to a child. It's very touching, all of that. I think that's excellent. But then you would think then when the adults follow up on that, well, now that I'm open to this, but no. So maybe if Planet of the Humans had been put out by Greta, (laughs) same exact film, 
so that's a really a really interesting phenomenon. I don't know if there's much really we can do about it because as fun as it might be to have children run the world, I'd, I'd kind of rather not because I, I as as absurd, I have to say this, it is absurd and a kind of a sad thing that the environmental movement would be taking orders from a child. And I do I, not say that to denigrate Greta at all because I think she's mostly right, but it's almost like, it's it shows how pathetic we are that we're like okay now we're gonna listen it's like really yeah uh, you know i i've been meaning to write something about that and i haven't gotten a chance but i i agree wholeheartedly i mean again i say i know she's sincere and i agree with what she's saying but it's very odd that all of the adults in the room are t- and and i he- see this when i see messages online or i hear people they're looking to her as their savior. And it's yeah. like, we are adults here. What we really, we, we, we have careers. We, we've done all these things in our lives. We, we should have some wisdom by now if we're of a certain age and we're looking to teenagers to lead us to the future. It seems really irresponsible. I guess that's the way I'd put it. Because again, I don't want to denigrate Greta, no. but I, I think it's really pretty horrendous that we've come to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I at first thought people were joking a little bit. And they're like, well, I wonder what Greta would think about this. And it's like, whoa, wait, wait a second. That's, yeah. Is that seriously, you're, you're looking to her for the policy decisions? Listen, right. she, she has, she is a great speaker. All of that stuff is undeniable. I wish her the best in every way, but come on. And that's not on her. That's on these environmentalists. And mm-hmm. wow. So, yeah. So and, mo- go ahead. Sorry. And I mean, here's the thing. I, uh, she came out with an article with a couple of other young people just the other day oh. saying that, you know, she's been at this for two years and nothing has changed. And yeah. I, I have to say, you know, I, I actually tweeted back to her and I'm, I'm kind of new to Twitter, but I've been using it more lately because it's all I have the time for. And, um, she, I, I said, welcome to the club, Greta, because she's, I think she's been feeling good because she's gotten a lot of good attention and she's been able to meet with the powerful people around the world and send her message. But I think a lot of us who've been at this for a while know that no matter what we do, it seems like it falls on deaf ears and nothing changes. And yeah. unfortunately, she's young and she's learning these lessons now too. And it it's, it's disheartening and it's, it's hard. And I feel bad that someone at her age needs to learn it, but that, yeah, this is what's happening. And, um, this is, has been happening to many people throughout the years. And it's unfortunate that, you know, I hope this doesn't hurt her as she seems to keep wanting to go on. And that's good. Cause I know, um, reading her history that she was extremely depressed, but <laughs> the funny thing is I think all of us who've been in this sort of fight have been, despairing and depressed and um, despondent at many times over and over. Yeah, we either start out that way or we <laughs> become that way. That's for sure. Or go in waves. Yes, yeah. definitely the waves. I've experienced that. I'm actually the most optimistic I've been in a long time. Or maybe it's just a matter of I I have more acceptance of whatever comes. So I don't know if that's even optimism. But it's clear that children should be a part of this if they on their own care about it. And I think a lot of kids genuinely do care about 
nature. You take them out into nature, they love it. If they see you cutting down a tree or killing a deer, they're always going to ask, is that something that we should do? So I think instinctually they have a real appreciation for it. So I know there is argument that Greta is being cajoled into it. Who knows? Maybe there's some coercion, but she's old enough to at least decide whether she cares about an issue. And I, I think she definitely does. And, and I think it is very powerful as in here are the folks who are going to inherit the earth. They should have a say. They should be engaged with that. But I do see this whole a new version over and over again of folks who just get into activism. They're trying to reinvent the wheel. They're like, all right, well, we're the first people who ever noticed this. Yes. And let's, hey, has anyone ever tried marching in the streets? Uh, oh, yeah, yes. everyone has forever and it does nothing. <laughs> and it's, that's, it's fine to march in the streets, but come on. It's not yeah, uh, I, that's, that was another point that I was hoping to make if I could write about this. Because it seems like a lot of the new people, the younger generation, and again, I don't question any of their sincerity, and they have a right to be angry, and they have a right to be part of the changes that we need to make if we if we ever do. Um, but they they seem to think that because, you know, it's funny, I think they think because it's not on the internet that nothing's been done yeah. and they don't realize that a lot of us didn't grow up with internet. Right. We didn't even have access to any media. So everything we were doing and everything we wanted to write, we had no outlet for it until very recently. Right. And so they are trying to reinvent the wheel. And it's kind of, it's it's rough because I see I saw that when I read through the Green New Deal, I thought, oh my gosh, they put in all of this stuff and they don't even realize that all these people who've gone to school or who've been in the environmental movement for decades, we, we've we already been schooled in all this. We are, And we've already seen what works and what doesn't work and what has potential. And it was yeah. like they were starting from environmental studies 101, it seemed to me. Yeah. I mean, the adults are being more juvenile than the kids in many ways. And well, there is this disconnect. There are these generations that go through and they do activism and then the next wave comes through and there's very little connection. I experienced that when I lived out in Eugene, Oregon, and I was doing environmental activism there. And I was at an age, so I was late 20s until I guess early 30s, maybe like mid to late 20s at the time. So I was an interface between the college kids, right, who were doing their own thing. And then some of the older school maybe earth first kind of types and and folks who have been doing this for a while and some of whom were stepping further, further away. And there was just this gulf between the two. And it's like, these folks have been doing this for 20 years. We can learn a few things, but there is the ageism from the younger folks who are like, yeah, anyone over this age, they don't know what they're doing. And then there's ageism in the reverse. It's like, well, I'm 42 and this kid is 19 and what does he know? And it's like, yeah, probably not as much as you, but at the same time, he is a vital force and he probably does have some new ideas. So I would be this gopher between them back and forth. And finally, we started bringing him together and then uh, Homeland Security and the cops busted us up. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> well, that, that seems really um, apropos because, you know, once you start getting together and you get new blood who has new ideas and the old people who can who can bring to the table what what has worked and what hasn't worked, that's when you get really um, threatening. So it makes sense that they would bust you up at that point. Yep, yep, that's what ended up happening. We maybe we started to unite the forces. But yeah, so I do see that with all this, all of this. And 
I've surprised. So Greta hasn't retweeted anything about Planet of the Humans, which it's it's the way that a lot of the media and environmentalists have treated it. It's kind of like, oh, some of the elite has said it's untouchable for whatever reason. Not really. There's some legit critiques, but not to the point you would erase something that's gotten that got 8.5 million views in a matter of a couple months. And it's still up there, but it's not being covered anywhere. So it's spreading very slowly. But she didn't retweet anything like that. She didn't even have a statement on that. I don't think there's any way that it hadn't crossed her radar, but I think her keepers were like, Greta, this is, you don't, you're going to stay, let's stay away from this. And and that's what happened, I think, to media too, because at first, right when it came out, media was <laughs> putting out almost raves of it. They were getting all these good reviews in The Guardian, all these sort of publications. And then the doctrinaires came out, the the ideologues, and they're like, no, 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 you can't like this because, uh, what, what are we going to say? Oh, there's one time that a guy says that solar is not good. So therefore the whole film is saying that solar is evil. And then they mention a population in basically six seconds of it. So therefore they're eugenicists. And so, and then they didn't allow, these publications literally did not allow rebuttals. Michael Moore and those folks tried to put out responses to literal slander and libel. And these publications said, no, we're, we're not going to yeah. let you respond. So if you're a good environmentalist, you're either going to be brainwashed by that good as in, you know, you're, you're going through the motions, whatever. Or if everyone's like, hey, man, anytime you talk about that, it's going to take some points away. Who the hell's going to touch that? Right. Only us dissident environmentalists who come pre-canceled. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a hard time putting out the piece I wrote about it, and I couldn't find really anywhere that would take it. And and the interesting thing is that I, I don't think what the mainstream environmentalists and the gatekeepers of the environmental movement, um, their take on it, I don't think that is the consensus at all. No. Because I'll tell you, there I was reading all of the criticisms of the film that came out. And like you said, they came out after... Because the film originally was out on, in the um, the indie circuit, I think, right. the fall before it came out it on YouTube. Yes. And it, yeah, and at that point there was no problem. And then when it came out for free on YouTube, suddenly it's a scandal. Yeah. Um, but all of the criticisms, and these criticisms were being printed in all of these sort of what people would deem progressive and alternative publications online. Mm -hmm. um, I read a lot of them, and the ones where they allow comments, most of the people who commented did not agree with the criticism at all. Oh, yeah. So it, it's another example of, of you know, our so-called democracy kind of creating the, um, well, it's propaganda. It's, you know, yes. creating what we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to think about it. And it's, it doesn't represent what people are feeling and what they thought of the film and what they think about what's going on with the environment. Yeah, it was the so-called elites who decided to doctor the message as best they could because it was threatening to their green delusions that Greta talks mm -hmm. about all the damn time. I know. So I thought that's funny. But yeah, you're right. All the response to the criticism, believe me, I read almost everything. I was following this very, very closely for a while because, again, I was fascinated by the response. The film itself, like, cool, all right, nice, finally it's getting out there in the mainstream. The people have been talking about these issues for you know decades, nothing new. 
it's getting out there. Holy crap. Wow. Finally, for the first time, it's getting out there on a mainstream platform. And then I would see these responses and like, what are they? Okay, well, that's a kind of almost a point. But then there's the whole rest of the movie. But then you look at of course, the responses to that when they're allowed and the thing is they weren't allowed in the media because as a journalist myself, I that was the most difficult piece I've ever placed in my life. And I, I submitted mm-hmm. it to all the publications that ran negative hit pieces on it. I was like, well, hey, here's here's a follow up, because at first I was like, oh, wow, I guess nobody is actually offering the other side. I should do that. And then I realized, no, other people are. They just wouldn't run the pieces. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, all you have to do to see what the public consensus really is, is go to the YouTube video itself, go to Planet of the Humans and look at the comments there. They're like 95% positive. People are into it. So the the groundswell is there. It's how do we take that momentum and knowing that sadly, a lot of mainstream environmentalists who I will be the first to say have done a lot of good, but in some ways they're outliving their usefulness and they're doing more harm than good. In some ways, the fact that they're now out operating as these gatekeepers and censors, uh, that's when that's when I start being wary of people. Not when they have different opinions. I'm I'm all for different opinions. I can I can really respect anyone who has an opinion that's different than me as long as they're not trying to hurt anybody. But when their mm-hmm. their role becomes well, because we're the popular ones and now this doesn't get out there. Sorry, that that makes you an enemy and. The public wants to be a part of stuff. So it, I think it is up to us to try to, you know, utilize that momentum. I'm trying to do that a little bit with the Green Root podcast, trying to get folks talking about this issue. But what else do you think about that? Well, it, it's ironic where we started this conversation with Greta, being that the same people who have embraced her, I think, embrace this film. It's the stuff that they've been thinking and feeling about what's going on in the environment and longing to hear Um but as far as the those who sort of control the environmental movement, you know, I, I again, I don't have all the answers, but um, a lot of my research in my um, PhD was on environmental communication. And I, I really feel there's a problem with thinking that having people on board in, in terms of communication and getting a message out there and having people embrace your message is the same as action. Mm. So it's like, I, f- I feel like people think when you have a million Twitter followers, it's almost like the end of the story. Right. right. Um, and so I feel like the, the so-called elites or gatekeepers of the environmental movement, um, they might think they have to simplify the message and simplify the solution so they can get the most people on board with them. And to have all those people on board, just meaning that people say, yeah, we're, we're behind the environment. But if you're, if you're offering up simple solutions and unsustainable solutions, it really doesn't matter if you have the entire planet on board, right. if it's not going to save the environment, you know? Well, and, yeah, sorry. Go on. I mean, I, I think, you know, I can't remember the exact amount, but Ralph Nader talks about this all the time. You really only need 10% of the population or 20% of people to get, and it might even be less than that, to get behind an issue mm-hmm. and who are really willing to act on that issue to make change. We don't need everybody to believe in climate change, even though most people do now, mm-hmm. But and we don't need everybody to embrace the particular solution you're offering. We need real solutions that are actually going to 
you know, curtail the climate crisis, and more than that, curtail our other attendant ecological crises. And again, we don't need everybody on board with those solutions because it would be better if we only had 10% on people on board with real solutions than 100% of people on board with things that are really just exacerbating the problem in the name of being quote unquote green. Yeah, I think that is a perfect assessment and that's definitely where I stand on things. It's about quality, not quantity. And it's like, it'd be better to have the folks who are on the ground going to be doing stuff, a smaller percentage of them who can establish some models for how the rest mm -hmm. of the world can do it. Cause that's the only way it may be that the role of the mainstream environmental movement has never really been to come up with solutions. It, it literally might be that those who are involved with it are incapable of it. You can look at it in terms of psychological development. You can look at it in terms of consciousness studies, however you want to look at it. But the idea of, I care about the environment. And then you just like, I'm just going to start feeling more about it. That's, that's a, you have to start there. If you don't feel and care, you're not going to do anything. But the idea of like, well, if I just wish really hard, yeah, that doesn't do anything. And then we need to move beyond that. So it, uh, in my mind, I'm like, oh, the mainstream environmental movement should be doing all this stuff. What if that's not even their role? What if their role is simply to be, to call attention, to be kind of cheerleaders? And I don't like the way that they allow certain things to get through the door or not. But maybe their just job is to be like cheerleader, yay, green, and that's literally it, right? No, no offense to cheerleaders, and this this probably will come across as a terrible <laughs> analogy, but but the cheerleaders themselves don't score the touchdowns and to erase the sexism from that. Let's imagine these are male cheerleaders, and this is like a, a woman's uh, football league. So looking at it that way, the cheerleaders are still not scoring the the touchdowns. So okay, let's accept that they're just the cheerleaders. And then let's, let's those of us who actually want to move this forward, try to come up some with some models. So maybe let's talk a little bit about, about where we can go. But before that, because I noticed you mentioned this in your piece, and this definitely ties into looking about what we're going to do. I've thought about this for a long time, and I've written some pieces on it, the idea of focusing entirely on the climate versus the larger ecological crisis, environmental issues. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, my, my background is rooted in biology and in, in my interdisciplinary graduate studies, I, I, and before that, because I've been, you know, an environmental advocate prior to going back to graduate school and having the, you know, letters behind me, um, I'm, I was more focused on health and, um, pollution and toxicants. And I think a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, because we talk about toxics, but we seem to feel like, you know, we've cleaned up our waterways. Mm. And sometimes we sometimes we talk about air pollution. But in, in many ways, we talk about the 70s when the Clean Air Act came out and the EPA came out and Clean Water Act, and that a lot of that stuff has been solved. And the truth is, none of that has been solved. It's, it's really only gotten worse. And the only reason we don't realize that is because so many of the contaminants in our water and in our air aren't even measured, aren't even accounted for. Um, and so I, I feel like we look at the climate crisis, which of course may be the most existential crisis. However, it may not be. It may be 
one of two or one of a few. Um, and we look for energy solutions and we look for, you know, renewable energy. And we don't think about uh, land use and what the renewable energy solutions, um, their unintended consequences in terms of ecology. And we don't think of their unintended consequences in terms of contamination and pollution. And um, even, you know, I feel like the Green New Deal in promoting this so-called green energy doesn't even think of social effects and um, globalization effects and and uh, the effects of empire. We, are, we In order to do something like decarbonize our economy and, and change to renewals, renewables, we don't think about all the, the imperialism that is necessary for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, mm-hmm. but I think, and the, to go back to what you were saying about like the mainstream environmentalists being cheerleaders, I think that would be great. But however, I see them as, um, you know, I see them as proposing solutions and a lot of their solutions are vote for this party, vote for this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and support the Green New Deal and uh, support renewable energy. And those of us who speak about some of the issues with the Green New Deal, not from a right perspective, but from a left perspective or from an ecological perspective, and who talk about some of the issues with many of these politicians from an ecological perspective, we're not supposed to say anything. Mm -hmm. And we're not supposed to propose what kind of solutions could be um, beyond what these gatekeepers are proposing. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's one of the issues I have because I feel like, um, those who have the power in the environmental discourse, um, have the power to keep out all other voices and all other solutions. And that seems to be what they, they are doing because there's, I mean, and it's, There's people, again, who've been around for decades, and I've I've been speaking to them. There's a group called Cassie, Mm -hmm. C-A-S-S-E, who, and I can't, I wish I could remember what it stands for. I should look it up. But they've been talking about steady state economics for a long, long time, and they've been working on it, and they have a whole organization working on it. And we won't talk about degrowth. We won't talk about steady state economics in these mainstream environmental organizations. Yep. Well, they're but called these... Center, sorry, real quick, Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy is Cassie. Thank you. Yes. And, you know, and these, these are not new ideas as we were talking about before reinventing no. the wheel. These are old ideas. Mm-hmm. These are ideas that have been around both in academia and in environmental organizations and environmental nonprofit activism for a long time. And for some reason, these ideas are thrown out as politically infeasible mm-hmm. when they, you know, it really doesn't matter when the world is being destroyed, when when our ecosystems are being so degraded, whether something is politically feasible or not. Because at some point, we either try something that seems really radical or we don't solve anything. Yep. So I think that's absolutely And I mean true. and as I've I've said so many times if the IPCC says in their their climate report that we need radical changes for a global 
scientific organization, or some some would say it's more of a political organization, but it's comprised of science, mm-hmm. scientists. For them to say we need radical changes to our way of life really should mean something, because scientists are notoriously conservative in their proclamations. So yes. Yeah, well, let's definitely in a second get into that way of life thing, because that is something that I am very passionate about, and most environmentalists don't want to talk about that. So I think to extend my terrible analogy from before with the cheerleader thing. So you are right that they do sometimes come up with their own solutions, but they are the solutions of, of cheerleaders. Again, remember the male, male cheerleaders, everyone. Um, so <laughs> they are, they're like, get the touchdown. And it's like, well, Oh, do you mean come up with a strategy for uh, how your running back is good? You know, that that's how you mm-hmm. get the touchdown. You don't just, yell out, get the touchdown. So that's the way I see a lot of their solutions. But, you know, sometimes they do have some specific ones, of course, and some of them are good. But I think I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the focus away from basically what is the beginning of the environmental movement, the foundations, the origins, which are toxics and also land-based. So wilderness stuff, but just uh, land-based degradation stuff instead of climate alone. So what we've done is we've shifted away from from looking at those particular issues, which frankly tie into a lot of social justice stuff. I worked on biomass and incineration issues. We're going to have another podcast on. We've had one on biomass. We're going to have one on incineration out in the next uh, couple weeks. And that does affect a lot of folks who are lower income, communities of color, etc. So that's super important in every way. And the land gay stuff, actually protecting wild lands that if you even care about climate alone, if that's all you care about, it's still the best carbon storage. The oceans and the forests are the, and the soil are the best carbon storage. So the idea that we're leaving that out of the equation is just sort of silly to focus only on climate, which is super, super important. And I don't think you can have a conversation about environmentalism these days without bringing the climate. I am not downplaying the climate, but come on, that's not the only piece there. And in fact, the focus on that, the myopic focus on that alone, it opens the doors to more nuclear power, which is what we're seeing with aspects some folks call the Green New Deal, the Green Nuke Deal, because it opens the door to that. Uh, Groups like 350 have never explicitly said anything against nuclear. And when you basically say, Let's switch from fossil fuels. All right, I'm all on board with that. With that, while saying, yeah, all the solar. It's like that would be nice, but we're at what one percent electricity, one point seven percent electricity solar right now, and that's only just electricity. We have heating, transportation. Come on, we're we're not going to get there without reducing our energy consumption, unless we toss in a bunch of nukes or biomass, two of which I think typically do more harm than good. I, I would say that across the board for nukes and and largely mm-hmm. for biomass and then just false solutions that aren't enough. Just like, yay, wind and solar. And, and there are certainly some footprints to wind and solar. And there are certainly some installations that probably do more harm than good. And they do require all sorts of minerals and frankly, fossil fuels right now. But the my main issue with the the idea of wind and solar alone is just that there's not enough of that right now. And, you know, maybe at some point, but I have not seen the mathematical models that suggest that we can get there anytime soon without energy reduction. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what I'm rambling into, which is the idea of, well, guess what, folks, we're going to have to look at the American way of life 
TM, you know, trademark yeah. there. And I think really at the heart of Planet of the Humans, that was the piece that people instinctively drew away from the most. Not they, they focused on, oh, he said one thing I didn't like about solar. And did you know that solar is actually slightly better years later? It's like, okay, that, that's nice. That That's like two lines of a critique. And then what else? It's that they don't want to look at the other things because... They, they find it a hard message to sell or they themselves don't want to change. So what do you think about mm -hmm. consumption way of life? Well, that's something that I always talk about. I mean, I think that that is the central thing we need to change. We need, and I, I've been in recent talks I've had and podcasts I've done, I've been talking more about, I think the major change we need and immediately is a, a decolonization of our minds. I'm stealing that from Vandana Shiva, but um, to take away this idea of what is a good way of life, what our ambition should be, what makes success, because everything we aspire to or, or are told to aspire to in America and most of the Western world is totally unsustainable. Mm. Um, so that's where I, I, I usually start. I think we we all need to realize that this way of life cannot go on. And part of the reason where we don't offer or um, the mainstream environmentalists don't really offer any true solutions is because it's all predicated on maintaining this way of life mm -hmm. and finding a way, a workaround, a green workaround, which is not reality. It's not going to happen. You know, all the engineers in the world don't have a workaround to um, maintain ecosystems and to, um, reduce our extinction crisis with technology. Um, and I was going to comment when you were talking about environmental justice, because that's one of the big aspects of my work and my um, scholarship. The Green New Deal, to give kudos to it, it really focuses a lot on environmental justice. But at the same time, it's fairly contradictory, because even in building um, um, a renewable energy full of solar and wind, if you're doing it in on, on an industrial scale and you're doing it in a centralized way and you're doing massive industry, it, inevitably this is going to fall on frontline communities and the pollution and the toxicants and the waste and everything that comes with industry. And that comes with building solar and building um, uh, wind turbines and building wind farms. All of those sort of we can call them unintended consequences, but they're known consequences to our ecology and to our health are always falling on the poorest communities and mainly communities of color. And so it's like they they know this and they want to change it, but it's not going to change when we're building these big industries. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a huge point. And I, I do find that a lot of this disconnect does come down to folks ideologies so there are folks i've talked to and some of them will be coming up on the green root podcast who i disagree with some aspects i always disagree i disagree with everybody on something that's why it's so easy for me to talk to people i really disagree with i'm like well what else is new i always disagree with people so i don't find <laughs> it threatening or anything like that I, I actually i very much enjoy it but i've talked to them and so we're on board like yeah the economic system definitely one of the 
problems. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And the governmental stuff. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And corporate rule. I'm like, right on. Absolutely. And that's why And I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, our way of life and consumption, like, no, 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 that has nothing to do with it. I'm like, wait, no. What do you, what do you mean? They're like, no, no, that that's, we're just fed all of this. None of us, there's no actual demand from the consumers. And I'm like, hold, hold up a second, because I'm sorry, but these corporations would not continue to exist if we didn't keep feeding them, if we didn't keep buying their stuff. And I realize we have less options and things like that. But time and time again, I've seen if people have the easy corporate, slightly cheaper option versus the the local, maybe slightly more expensive option. And sometimes that comes into whether you can afford it, but a lot of times it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's just people are making these choices. And, and so it's almost like, did the demand come first or is it manufactured demand? I think it's a little bit of both, but here's the thing. Let's say that there's a disagreement on that. No, no, no. We only want this crap because they market it to us all the time. It's like, okay, well, let's ignore the fact that marketing is based on our innermost desires. Let's just ignore that. Let's just say, yeah, you're right. They're just forcing us to buy all this crap. So that's where we're at right now. So what you're saying is, well, that's why we have to take down the corporate rule so then what people can't get the things that they're all demanding i don't even think that's going to work as long as people keep wanting this stuff you're you just saying yeah and corporations aren't going to exist when you continue to support them it's sort of like a a fantasy thing so in my mind the only real way to take those things down is sure let's keep hammering on the economic system the government corporate let's do all that i am all in favor of that this is not an either or but then let's also be like hey Maybe let's stop feeding the beast here, teaching people that maybe there's a different way of doing things and that it, most importantly, is not all sacrifice. It is sacrifice in a way, but it's also how can we simplify our lives to have higher quality lives, lives more in touch with one another, the landscape, ourselves. That's kind of, that's the product that I'm selling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I was just going to say that. First of all, I think you're right. We need to, and I, I say this all the time, it needs to come from top down and bottom up. And so, for example, there are plenty of people who rail about Jeff Bezos and his fortune and how he's making even exponentially his wealth is growing now when all these other people are going impoverished and potentially going homeless through this pandemic. And a lot of us agree with this. And yet so many people will not stop buying from Amazon. Yes. And I, and I, when I say these kinds of things, I, I always want to exclude the poorest and yes. the most vulnerable because there, there are so many people in this country who are struggling and who can, who can barely have time or have no choices, really. Just Absolutely. don't have choices. And forget them. They're excluded. They can do what they want because yes. we need to help them first. They're, and they need to have a, a better yeah. life. They're more at but, folks who are at survival level. Absolutely. That's yes, absolutely. And, and but but anybody who has a little more than that and can choose. I, I mean, you know, you've seen this all the time. I'm sure people are always saying, well, get it at Amazon and people are writing books and they go on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I understand it's almost like all there is. But unless we can be models of resistance we're never going to change anything. And, and again, like you said, it's not all a sacrifice. Um, I'll give another example. When I used to teach, I used to do this icebreaker with my students. And this was probably, 
over 10 years ago, um, because I know all the kids aren't on Facebook anymore, but it was when Facebook was much more popular. And so I asked my students to tell me something sort of odd about them. And, and what I told them was that I was not on Facebook. Mm. And I had a student tell me that she was, but she didn't want to be. Mm. And so again, it's like, we are forced to embrace all of these things and it doesn't necessarily make us happy. It doesn't necessarily make our lives more efficient. In fact, I would, I would suggest that a lot of this consumption, a lot of our consumerism, a lot of our um, internet consumption is making us much more depressed, much more psychologically and emotionally unstable. And yeah, like you said, we could, we could decrease our consumption of all sorts of materials and other types of things, and make our lives much better, and of course, make our world much more ecologically sustainable. I don't think it's an either or. I do think there's some things that you may that we may have to feel are a sacrifice, but mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think it would necessarily make life worse. And of course, right. what I was talking to before about people who don't have choices, uh, one thing I think is that you know, there, the universal basic income has been coming up. Andrew Yang brought it up in the Democratic primary, and people have been talking about it more. Um, it's sort of, I don't know if it's hit the mainstream, but it's come closer. And I think one of the things that sort of the powers that be fear about some kind of universal basic income, especially one that would give everybody enough to sort of be at survival level, is that then people would make those choices not to consume. They would make mm. those choices to live a simpler and um, and easier life. And the global marketplace and the, the multinational corporations would certainly suffer. Mm. Because I don't think I don't think most people sort of want to live in this complex, crazy world that we're almost forced to live in. But there's all these um, parts of it that sort of make us do these things that we can't control. On the other hand, like you were saying, I think there's a lot we can control. And I know a lot of people, including myself, who are resisting a lot of this. And it is a sacrifice, I have to say, in many ways. Mm -hmm. it, you know, a lot of us who do resist, no, we don't have all of the luxury goods. We don't even have all of the the general goods that people have. We're families that have if we're lucky, we have one car instead of everybody who drives having cars. And you know what? That's okay. Um, you know, in many circumstances, a lot of this is okay. Mm -hmm. And and you can still survive. So, right. yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion that needs to be had on that. But, of course, how can we have that discussion in, um, in major media that is dependent upon all these major corporations that want us to just be consumers. Yeah. All, I mean, in fact, they talk about us as consumers. They don't talk about us as citizens. Hmm. And everything in this pandemic has been um, bringing back economic growth. And we've been talking about how, you know, if you listen to anything on television, any of the, the news media on television, it's all about how our economic growth has, has been stymied. I mean, there's no even thought to degrowth or steady state economics and cutting through that is one of the real issues. And again, that goes to cutting towards uh, cutting through all of the propaganda that is spewed at us all the time that we 
these assumptions about our way of life and about how we are to live and what our aspirations should be that are internalized. And I really think that's so closely connected to to what's going on in the environment. And we have to get past that with enough people before we can really change anything. I think you're absolutely right about that. And yeah, the economic system is set up in such a way that it would collapse were people to have their basic needs met or other things like that. They wouldn't necessarily be spending all their money on other things. And that's why I think it is valid. It's like we do have to come up with alternative economic systems in order for folks to really be able to prosper. But at the same time, people will fight, most people will fight tooth and nail to really prevent that from happening because people don't really want to give up their comforts. And then frankly, folks who have not really accessed much, much comforts in their lives, folks in the developing world, who are we to tell them that they can't get to the the level of resource access that we are, you know, maybe there's not right. enough to go around, but I'm certainly not going to say, Oh, I'm sorry. You don't get to have that because I used it all up. So it's a very tricky, tricky thing, but I do think ultimately we're not going to tear away people's economic systems until they are okay with a different way of life. And yeah, I think for sure there are tons of, there are tons of sacrifices and I'm not downplaying that. I think I've looked at studies that actually show your level of consumption is tied to how people look at you in terms of status, which that was a right. huge blow. And, you know, so that, that ties into the mating world, the human mating world, I guess however, they call it dating. <laughs> to interject, yeah. however, there's plenty of studies to show that beyond a level, a certain financial level, there is no comfort. There's no, right. the, in fact, people get more depressed and, and, I have to give kudos to Adbusters. Um, I don't know if you know that magazine, mm -hmm. but it's been around for decades. And they were saying all of this in the late 80s, early 90s, that, you know, this this constant strive toward more uh, financial security and more more money is is not doing anything, not for the individuals involved and not for the countries. Because if you look at a country like America, um, of course, we have such tremendous inequality at this point. Mm -hmm. But the people who have money don't gain any more happiness or fulfillment in their lives. And you have right. a country like Bhutan, which many of us would look on as poor, and their happiness index is much higher. And that's what they've been basing their um, their government system and their lives on is a, ha a genuine happiness index instead of growth domestic product. Right. And that's something that I think we need to go to. And to speak to what you said about, you know, telling other nations and telling the third world that they can't have what we have. Yeah, this is this is such a discussion that's always been had. And of course, that's what degrowth is all about. Mm -hmm. It's about degrowing the first world right. from their absolute and disgusting excess yep. and providing that excess to those in need. Yeah, no, I totally agree with with all that. And yeah, in terms of the the, the studies, for sure, there's studies, I think it was like about $60,000, $67,000 a year. Anything below that? Sure, because you're concerned about paying bills and having some basic stuff and maybe you can't go on a vacation and that's stressful. But then beyond that, they found that there is no increase in happiness. The study I was talking about was more of the outward view of the individual in terms of their right. consumption and status. And frankly, there are plenty of social rewards that we can't deny that if you go around 
with flashiness and it's not just in the the rich rich consumer world it's also even in the liberal hippie world if you have the right clothing that looks like it's homemade but it's actually three hundred dollars you know <laughs> yeah so there's plenty of that going on in terms yeah. of status but so i i think we have to be very honest about the sacrifices but yet yeah, the other end of things realizing how many more benefits there are and one silly example i'll give is so during the pandemic stop going to restaurants right and my favorite mm -hmm. food substance are egg rolls like the fried the fried less healthy egg rolls i i freaking love mm -hmm. those and i was like well i guess i'm not doing that for a while i, I would get the try to get the frozen ones from the store the, those weren't very good not like, quite I'm, the same <laughs> no but i'm like you know what i'm gonna start making my own egg rolls and now i'm making my own egg rolls and they are better they are cheaper and yeah. they're way more satisfying so yes that started as a sacrifice and ended up as a win for me yeah, that's a great example because I I think I, and that would be a win if we all if we all had a basic income that allowed us to do that where one person in the family could cook that would be a win for the environment and to get rid of all these food products that aren't good for us but also for our health because people who are in households where you know people cook from scratch are generally more healthy than those who are always getting takeout and always getting going out to eat. Really um, good point, yeah. But I decide how much that, oil goes into my egg rolls. <laughs> well, but oil in itself isn't bad. It no, really depends. It's the, fry, the deep frying, yeah, totally. <laughs> but um, the other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of like degrowth and sacrifice is that something, I, I, this, there were a couple studies that came out recently that were, tremendously overlooked, but one was out of Australia and it appeared, or maybe it wasn't a study, it was a review in Nature, um, which is, you know, a very prestigious journal uh, out of the UK, the, the most prestigious science journal, saying that um, that the rich are the, you know, we cannot, basically we cannot have sustainability without um, dealing with excess wealth mm. and the rich. The rich are the problem and the the more rich you are the more you contribute to environmental destruction and ecological devastation and there was another one about um climate and how the more wealth you have the more you are consuming um carbon dioxide and of course mm -hmm. this is so obvious but i think it speaks to the fact that we need to is as a society we exalt all these, you know, tech billionaires and the celebrities in Hollywood and all these people who have massive wealth. And we need to start saying, you know, that's great that you're a fantastic actor. Um, that's great that you are, um, you've, you've invented something, but to accumulate such wealth and to accumulate such excess, it, it requires such material resource use and you can't pretend to care about the climate. You can't pretend to care about the environment and have that much and be living that way. It's just it's just not compatible and it's not realistic. Right, right. So I guess the question is, who is providing the model for another way of living, right? Because it's one thing to, to grouse about the rich folks, and I think that's a valid point, right? You can't live like... Elon Musk, you know, that's just, if everybody in the world lived like, I mean, that's just not even, it's not even literally possible. So not an answer, but 
nor is saying, well, you can't live like that because they're like, well, it's too late for them. So we're not going to change those folks, right? So it's kind of the next folks coming up. So what would be a lifestyle for, say, uh, Greta to be, to be like, hey, Greta, here's the deal. You're not going to be living with your Lamborghinis, and she's probably fine with that. But, you know, here, here, is, here is a lifestyle that you're probably going to still be expecting certain things. If we tell you, yeah, you don't get internet access and you don't ever get new clothes, you'll be like, no, thank you. So we have to find that model. Have you seen any examples of where that may be happening? <laughs> uh, not really, because mm -hmm. most people aren't. Well, I don't know. I guess there's, there's, there are lots of people. I haven't seen any examples out in the mainstream and I haven't seen any large scale examples. And of course, I, you know, there is a problem with focusing on individual change, because there are plenty of people who are working on individual change, and we need more systemic change. I, I do think there's a lot of people out there who, um, ha, are, you know, buy their clothing or buy their furniture or, or whatever goods they might need at secondhand stores. Now, there's a lot of that going on partially out of necessity and partially out of environmental responsibility. So things like that. I mean, I've, I've postulated, and this is just, you know, out of nowhere, it's not scientific in any way, shape or form, but that we probably have enough goods that have already been manufactured on the planet for all of us, yeah. for our needs, enough yeah. clothing, you know, forget food, food needs. And, but you know, things that are, um, sort of, tangible items that we use like housing, food, um, clothing, those kinds of things. Um, and I think reusing these resources and sharing these resources, and there are actually, there are models like that. Instead of everybody saying, having a, um, a lawnmower in their neighborhood right. or in their community, you know, having one that everybody shares, yep. there are lots of lots of um, things like that going on, yep. sharing large equipment. Um, so yeah, use reusing things, looking toward old, um, old furniture, old clothes, old items that have come from, and they can even come from your family. I think a lot of people don't even do that, taking things from their own family, um, sharing with friends. But in, in a larger scale, there's, there's machinery and different items that people do kind of need every day that people are sharing instead of buying one for every household, that right. kind of thing. Yeah. Car shares, tool shares, those definitely, exactly. those definitely exist. Uh, I think that's definitely an example of things that people can do. So, so I support all that. Of course, in the same breath, we realize that that alone is not enough. We have to look at the systems, but it's not either or. That's what's so silly. It tends to right. be people focus on, well, ah, tear down the system. It doesn't matter what I do in my life. Well, no. And then there are folks who I know are like, well, if I just plant kale, then it will all. It's like, well, that's not enough either, obviously. So we have to do all of the above. It's not either or. It's it's the whole package. And I would say maybe one example to answer my own question is Eco villages, some folks have attempted those, but here's the thing, and this is what I know for pretty much a fact about it. The folks just pass through and they leave, they're, they're transient, they're sort of, the, the models exist, but not really the individuals because people can't figure out how to get along. And, and yes. that is at the heart, I think, of people are like, well, environmentalism, I'm like, 
and us learning not how to be assholes. It's like they're yeah. the same thing. I, I know people who've been in co-housing communities and I've talked to others about co-housing communities. And um, yeah, I think there is a problem there. And, and it might be just a problem, again, because of all this stuff that's ingrained in our psyche mm. about hierarchy. And then there's also the problem, like my friends who were in a co-housing community, um, one person owned the building and the rest of the people were sort of inhabitants of it. And when you have right. one person owning, that's always going to put this hierarchical dynamic, which becomes a problem. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that's the solution or if that could be a solution that but we need to sort of get over ourselves in many ways. And, and it is very, very hard to get over all these um, ideas of what our lives should be and what is success and how we should live that we've been told since we were born, especially in America. It's very, very hard. But I do think there are people out there who are um, showing alternatives in many ways. And, and yeah, like you said, our individual lifestyle choices aren't going to change anything. But being models for choices that can become more of the norm is exactly what we need to do. Um, I'll give another example. My husband used to live in Japan, and he said when he lived there, everybody was a smoker. Hmm. And now smoking, especially in public places, is unheard of. And and apparently, uh, in general, Japanese have a sort of more homogenous culture than we do in America. Hmm. Um, but they all got on board the no smoking after they had almost all been smokers. And just like that, social norms can change. And that's, that's what we need to work for new social norms. And that can change whole systems. So, you know, yeah. yes, we need to destroy some of these multinational conglomerates. And yes, we need to deal with the billionaires. Absolutely. I'm all on board. With it. And speaking of the, that excess of affluence, I just wanted to point out that the, the, our, um, the research article or the review article I was talking about was called The Scientist's Warning on Affluence. Mm. Um, but another way to deal with that is just uh, taxing the rich at a higher marginal tax rate, which we had in America for many, many years in the 20th century. And that's another way to deal with affluence and with redistribution of wealth and egalitarianism. And all of that would help the environment, too. Yeah, I think it's an all of the above kind of thing. And there are folks out there, they want to pick their little factions. And I suppose that's fine. They're advocating for their piece of the puzzle. But I'm trying to look at the whole puzzle. And I'm trying to invite folks on the Green Root podcast, who at least have an understanding of a piece of the puzzle. And I, I think it's all of the above people, I think we need to do all the above. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about these complex topics. And I will put links to your website, but where can people find your stuff? Or if you want people getting in touch with you or not, <laughs> that's fine too. <laughs> um, I guess the best way is now that I'm on Twitter, you could find me at Christine Mattis on Twitter. And there's a link to um, my blog, which hasn't been updated in quite a while. And you should be able to um, find me through there and find my email through that too. Great. Well, I definitely recommend folks check out your blog. The piece that you did write on Planet of the Humans was one of the best things I've seen out there. And of course, it's 
very difficult to get it out there, but we all know why. It wasn't because uh, the lack of quality of your writing or your points is probably the opposite because you hit the nail on the head, and that is very uh, upsetting to people. So there's a lot of stuff we have to overcome, and we'll try to do it one conversation at a time, I guess. Well, it's good to have these conversations. I'm glad a lot of these conversations are coming out there on your podcast and similar other podcasts. Yep, we're doing doing what we can for what it's worth. So thanks again for being here and for all you do. Thank you, too.